Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. In some follow-up from things we've discussed in the past, the Santa Fe Symposium has been on my mind in the last week or two. Uh, we've spoken about the Santa Fe Symposium a number of times. I've been a speaker at the Santa Fe Symposium as well as an attendee, and they've also been a sponsor of this podcast a few times. And uh, we got a note from Eddie Bell, who is the founder, uh, the co-founder of uh, the Santa Fe Symposium. Uh, I guess two weeks ago, he sent out a letter to uh, everybody who had been a past speaker. And uh, he's decided to shut down the Santa Fe Symposium. Uh, this coming year will be the 34th year for the symposium, and it will be its last year. Eddie has decided that he wants to retire and uh, it hasn't been quite as fun for him in the last few years trying to organize it. So he always told himself when it was no longer fun for him to do, then he was going to uh, retire from doing it. So unfortunately, that's uh, that's going to be the end for the symposium. Uh, the information is still going to be all out there as far as I know for a while. And uh, it's still a, an important resource for uh, those of us in the jewelry community and in the uh, metalworking community at large. Uh, so that's all going to stay out there. And hopefully this will also uh, kickstart a few other symposiums around the world. Uh, hopefully the, there are other people who end up uh, picking up the call uh, of what uh, Eddie started many, many years ago. Uh, I know that the Goldsmiths Company, their Congress, it's one of the symposiums that uh, we're hoping is going to continue on and pick up where the Santa Fe Symposium left off. Uh, so it's it's sad to see the symposium ending. Uh, I'm very happy that Eddie is leaving on his own terms, though, and stopping it when he felt that it was necessary to stop. Uh, this year is going to be a great celebration, uh, thanking everybody for their involvement over the last 34 years. Uh, but it will still be sad to see it go. Uh, I'm really happy that I've been able to be a part of it and that I've been able to add to the body of knowledge that was created as part of it. Well, given all the travel snafus that were encountered this year, uh, I can see how he, he would not have found this particular year to have been as, as fun as previous years. You know, having said that, I I actually enjoyed uh, enjoyed that quite a bit. I was sad to have missed the talks on the first day of the symposium this year, uh, but I it also meant that I spent ten hours in a bus sitting beside Eddie Bell. And if there's someone you can be forced to sit with for ten hours and not be bored, Eddie Bell is that man. He is a fascinating man. He has lived an incredible life and has a huge amount of knowledge to share and some amazing stories as well. Uh, so I was very fortunate to have been able to sit with Eddie for, for that time and the other people on the bus. Um, you know, they're, uh, listen, they're, the speakers at the Santa Fe Symposium are some of the most interesting people you'll ever meet. And so it really is not a horrible group of people to be stuck with for that length of time. Uh, I can certainly think of a lot of other people I would not want to be stuck on a bus with for 10 hours. Um, but even with those travel snafus, it was a great time, and I, I certainly wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to stop doing it just because of that. The big thing is going to be missing seeing everybody every May and um, not being able to catch up with them in Albuquerque every May. It's going to be a bit weird leaving Hotel Albuquerque for the last time this year and uh, knowing that that's the last time we'll have a Santa Fe Symposium. It'll be nice to see um, my friends and colleagues and, and everybody that I've gotten to know over the years through it and... Uh, 
We'll see what uh, what comes up out of it. I know the Portland Jewelry Symposium has uh, been running for a few years now. I don't remember when it started, but it's uh, it's another great symposium that uh, I know a lot of speakers from the Santa Fe Symposium also speak at. Uh, Snag also does an excellent symposium every year. Uh, so there there are some other ones out there. I think there's one in uh, Vicenza every year in February that uh, that I've heard is quite good. Uh, so. Uh, there's certainly some other symposiums out there, but uh, the Santa Fe Symposium was was easily the premier symposium for jewelers. If you were thinking about going to the Santa Fe Symposium, I still recommend going, even though this is the last year. It is worthwhile going. Uh, there are people that you'll meet there that will become lifelong friends and lifelong colleagues. And so it, it is worthwhile going, even though this is the last year that it'll be on. And given Eddie's presence and involvement with the Goldsmiths Conference this year, there does seem to be a, a real passing of the torch there as well. Yeah, the Goldsmiths Congress was intentionally modeled after the Santa Fe Symposium. Dr. Robert Organ, who heads the assaying department at the Goldsmiths Company, he has been a speaker a number of times at the Santa Fe Symposium, and he consulted with Eddie for how to set up and configure the Goldsmiths Congress. And then, of course, Eddie was also over there and was a speaker there. He was one of the keynote speakers and lent his presence to the Congress. So I expect that the Goldsmiths Congress will continue on for for many years. Uh, The nice thing about that is that there is a very high density of jewelers in Europe uh, and much higher density than there is in in North America. Obviously, we have to travel a little bit further afield in North America to get people there. We'll see how that uh, that comes up. I hope that uh, the Goldsmiths Company continues it on for many years. Uh, They're certainly the ideal body to continue that tradition on. Uh, They have been one of the gatekeepers of jewelry knowledge for the last 700 years. Uh, And they do also have their own training center there. So this is um, certainly in line with their mandate to help protect, maintain, and continue the jewelry traditions. Uh, So it's a perfect, perfect venue to hold something like this, uh, to hold a, a congress like that. And in much less momentous, but far more tasty follow-up, <laughs> uh, we did talk very briefly about, uh, or perhaps more extensively than we should have, chocolate chip cookies a couple episodes back. And Chef Steps recently released their guide to the, the ultimate chocolate chip cookie, or actually they, their ultimate guide to just chocolate chip cookies in general. So they've got a whole calculator, so you can dial it into exactly what you want. But their their average cookie is is well above average, uh, according to them. It's the perfect blend of chewy, crispy, buttery, chocolatey goodness. And I have yet to try it, but I thought it worth pointing out that this is out there. Uh, I have their their jewel, which is um, their sous vide apparatus, and I've been quite impressed with uh, all their their recipes. Uh, go along with that and then the app of course that that pairs with that so it's a, a great way to to cook all sorts of things absolutely perfectly and, and tenderly now i wouldn't recommend sous vide chocolate chip cookies but i'm sure there's someone out there who's, who's probably done that as well uh, but uh we will link to their chocolate chip cookie calculator in the show notes so anyone who is in the mood for a perfect chocolate chip cookie and and has the, the will and the means to make one uh th- this should have you covered I'll have to give this a try. I've been looking for new chocolate chip cookie recipes. We linked to the Bon Appetit video on their chocolate chip cookies last time we discussed this. 
I haven't actually had a chance yet to fry them. Uh, that is something that I need to do. Yeah, I've got a dinner coming up in a few weeks that uh, I'm, I'm cooking for. Maybe I'll give that a try and have uh, some chocolate chip cookies ready and uh, see what people think of these. So, yeah, I'm always look, I'm always up for a good chocolate chip cookie recipe, and I will certainly add this one to my list. If I recall, one of your most popular blog posts is, is food-related, so maybe you need to have a chocolate chip <laughs> cookie showdown. Yeah, it's it's funny. Tamara and I have been speaking about about doing a YouTube channel or maybe two channels uh, based on the things that we do, her calligraphy, my jewelry, metal working and stuff like that. But honestly, the, some of the most popular posts that I do on Instagram are food related. And uh, some of my most popular posts on my website are food related. So I may have to do a channel just about cooking because uh, it seems to be a really common theme. Uh, amongst the uh, makers that I know, in fact, when we talk, when we sit down at the Santa Fe Symposium, uh, when the speakers are are sitting around chatting, inevitably we start talking about our favorite food recipes because we all love making great food as well as making jewelry or whatever it is that we're we're doing our, with our metalworking. So it, it seems certainly seems to be a common theme amongst artists is um, being being good chefs or and good bakers yeah well uh maybe i'll maybe i'll need to add a third channel to my ideas list and and actually do a uh, separate cooking channel how are the hunger games uh very painful (laughs) what john's referring to is uh archery tag we happen to be uh, both of us were out this evening and uh, unbeknownst to each other uh, we were both at the same venue tonight. I was playing archery tag, and uh, you and your family were having dinner with some friends. Uh, so, uh, let me just say, I am not as young as I used to be. My my body is not uh, held up well to uh, running around and, and stooping to pick up arrows from the ground. But um, it was a lot of fun, but I will be paying for that tomorrow. I, I had heard of archery tag. I have not tried it, to be honest. It does not sound at all appealing to me, although it does sound a little more appealing <laughs> after you explained a little bit more to me, because uh, I, I just couldn't fathom being uh, shot at with a, a bow and arrow. <laughs> but the arrows are not as bad as, as uh, I had thought, and it turns out you don't get a full quiver of them either. No, no. Unfortunately, you're only allowed picking up one arrow at a time, and uh, honestly, they're not that painful. Um, most of the people who are playing even adults are unable to draw the bow completely. So, you know, often because not because they're not strong enough, because the bows are quite weak, but just because they're not used to drawing a bow properly. So uh, for those of us who are uh, have a little more experience with archery, we're drawing the bow a little further. I'm not sure that being on the tail end of one of my arrows is quite as pleasant as most of the shots that I was getting. Despite that, it's uh, it's still not that painful to uh, to play. So. If you're uh, interested in going out or if somebody's invited you out to play archery tag, even if it doesn't sound like the kind of thing you're normally into, it's it's certainly worth giving it a go. Uh, it is a lot of fun with a bunch of people that you know. So uh, give it a try if you're, uh, if you're out there. It's a little less um, daunting than, let's say, paintball or something like that. Um, I know a lot of people really can't handle paintball, but uh, this is a lot more fun than that and uh, certainly a lot less daunting. Once you get into it and you get hit the first time, you realize, oh, that's not so bad. And, and it's usually, uh, you know, it's a little bit easier to get into it. The arrow is a bit of a misnomer. How would you describe what you're actually getting hit with? Well, it is an arrow. It's got a shaft. It's got a knock. It has fletching on the back. So it has all of the 
things that an arrow has, you know, needs really. Uh, the the main difference is the sort of the business end of the arrow, as it were, uh, the bits that you're getting hit with. Uh, in this case, it's a foam tip, and the foam tip is maybe it's a cylinder, maybe two inches in diameter, and maybe three or four inches long. Uh, so it, it really does absorb most of the energy when um, when you get hit with it. Uh, plus, the arrows are made out of fiberglass, so they are very very light. Uh, and they're very light bows. I would say it was maybe a 20-pound bow. So it, it's not a very strong bow to begin with. And again, the you know these arrows are are uh, pretty pretty well padded on the end, so not particularly dangerous or uh, or deadly when it comes to uh, to getting hit with them. I see your your body isn't quite used to to keeping up with this sort of thing the way that uh, you used to. Is your is your eye and, and your mark uh, still as strong as it used to be? Oh, absolutely. Although you, you, it is a little bit weird shooting an arrow with this big foam head on it. It, it certainly does not fly the way that a normal an, a normal arrow flies. And also, these bows are significantly lighter in draw weight than what I'm used to shooting. So, the the target archery that I've done over the years, it's not uh, not quite the same as what I've done with that. Uh, just because those arrows tend to fly much faster and much truer, and you can be far more accurate with them. These are are not uh, weapons of accuracy, as it were, um, but there you can still have uh, have a lot of fun with them. You're, you know, you're in a relatively confined area, so it's not as if you're uh, you're trying to shoot somebody who's, uh, you know, 100 meters away or anything like that. So, what do you typically shoot? Uh, normally, when I'm shooting, I'm shooting a 45 pound recurve bow, and I'm typically shooting carbon fiber arrows. Uh, these are all just target arrows. I'm not doing any um, any hunting with them. So it's not a compound bow or anything like that. So it's a it's a pretty standard bow that you might see in something like the Olympics in terms of the uh, uh, the shape and design. Although I'm not using all the funky counterweights and everything that they're using. I actually know a, a watchmaker down in southwestern Ontario who was in the running to qualify for the Canadian Olympic team as an archer, and uh, he actually has his, his own little watch brand. It's uh, his fittingly named Archer Watches. Like one of his claims to fame is being uh, in the background of a, uh, a a a commercial that was shot with with Tiger Woods. He's one of the the archers, but uh, unfortunately, he uh, wound up with some pretty serious arthritis that uh, thwarted uh, any sort of career aspirations as an an archer. Uh, but uh, he was able to carve out uh, a really fabulous niche for himself as a watchmaker. And one of the tools you've been espousing as of late for for your swims uh, is the apple watch and what do you think of the the series five uh the series five looks interesting i did not buy one i have a series four watch and the series five is very close to the series four Uh, in fact the processor and memory and things like that in the series five are identical to the series four the only thing they've added uh in terms of new features they have a new graphics processor in it, which allows them to do an always-on display, which is slightly intriguing, but not enough that I would buy a watch specifically for that. Uh, and the way they handle the always-on display is interesting. It dims the display and also minimizes the amount of content on screen. And on top of that, this new graphics processor that's in it also reduces the refresh rate down to one hertz, which is a significant change in th- from the 60 hertz 
that it typically renders the screen. And trying to do that variable render rate is actually quite difficult to do. And so they, they put in a, a dedicated processor to be able to handle that. Uh, and then the other new feature that's in the, the Series 5 watch is the compass, which I don't really have any need for a compass. Um, if I do need a compass, I've got my phone and it has a compass in it as well. So uh, there wasn't enough about the Series 5 that appeals to me directly to go out and buy it. I know that for a lot of people, the always-on display is a huge thing. And it's something that they really wanted. If you were on an older watch, not a Series 4, but something earlier than that, or you've been thinking about getting into an Apple Watch and you've been sort of waiting for the a good time to get into an Apple Watch, I would say this generation of watch is actually an excellent one to get into. Um, it, this, this watch looks great. Uh, it has uh, a lot of great features in it. It is very fast and uh, for a lot of people, the always-on display was one of the deal breakers that the older versions um, didn't have. So uh, I would say that for a lot of people, the Series 5 watch is the way to get into it. It's the time to get in. Uh, but if you've got a Series 4, uh, I would say don't don't bother unless the always-on display is an absolute, you know, amazing feature for you and you desperately want that. I would I would say the Series 5 is uh, is not enough of an upgrade from Series 4 to go for it. Yeah, the graphics processor on the Series 5 is a huge change. Being able to drop the refresh rate from 60 hertz down to a single hertz is a huge power savings. I'd say it's akin to something we talked about way back in one of the very first episodes of this year uh, when we talked about the new releases at SIHH with Vacheron Constantine's Twin Beat, which features two oscillators inside of it. And the fact that by switching from one oscillator to the other, you suddenly extend the power reserve of the watch by an incredible amount, something you simply wouldn't be able to achieve with any normal oscillator and have any hopes of it keeping good time on your wrist. Uh, so what Apple's done here by, by cutting down the, the refresh rate on the screen is very similar. You've extended the um, length of time that uh, the watch can run by reducing the amount of energy that's being consumed while it is running. Although of that said, I have heard uh, the odd account here and there that uh, the always on displays and it's quite all it was cracked up to be in uh, the keynote uh, for people like MKBHD have actually turned the feature off because uh, they just were finding that the display being always on that the watch just wasn't holding up throughout the the course of the day and that that's not the the only person that uh, that I've heard that particular anecdote from. Yeah, there were a number of people who were complaining about battery life early on, although it turns out that it's not actually related to the always-on display. I know a lot of people were turning it off thinking that uh, that was going to help. Uh, it looks like the problem was actually related to iOS 13 and new watch OS 6 on those new watches. And the latest patch that was just released uh, this week has actually fixed a lot of those battery problems. So if you've been seeing reviews of the some of the early reviews of the uh, the watch and uh, you've been hearing about the battery life problems, don't necessarily take that into account when you're looking at buying one. Uh, one of the problems with these reviews is that they're often using either beta software or the very first release, uh, public release of the software, and they're often really buggy. So unfortunately, uh, a lot of these reviews end up um, having a sort of a poor experience because they're often running the earliest versions of software and they often have a lot of problems with them. So even if you're on 13.1.2, which is uh, the latest release as of this week, uh, and uh, watchOS 6.01, uh, 
those are definitely a huge improvement for everybody. So don't uh, don't take the battery life problems into consideration when you're when you're thinking about these watches. Uh, that that's already been resolved for the most part, and uh, I suspect by the time most people end up getting one of these, I, uh, most people probably get one of these for Christmas or something like that. Uh, by that time, uh, the the battery problems will have been resolved. Uh, certainly, the um, always on display is is not dramatically changing the uh, battery life based on. What I've been hearing talking to people who are on the developer betas, and uh, because they're sort of a month out in terms of what they're they're using, they're they're using software that uh, the public won't see for another month or so. A month out is being generous. <laughs> it's been surprising the pace that uh, Apple has actually been been churning out the the betas and the releases of this particular cycle. It's been a bit of a rocky start for iOS 13 and and watchOS 6. I've been playing with the betas now since the iOS 13 betas since probably June. And yeah, right now they're, I've been getting them at least three weeks ahead. Uh, even the public betas have been about three weeks ahead of the, the actual release cycle. So it's certainly whenever you, whenever you get these new devices, if you're getting them sort of launch day, uh, you're always going to be getting stuff that's a little bit shaky because they're, they're always pushing to get the, keep the software sort of in check with the the hardware the hardware dates are sort of fixed dates they don't really change when they release this stuff and the uh the software has to sort of try and keep pace with it so yeah if you're if you're a very very bleeding edge adopter and you want this stuff day and you know the first day that it comes out it's going to be a rough a rough ride for the first couple of weeks for sure uh but usually by the time these devices have been out for sort of four or five weeks which is when the vast majority of people start hearing about them and start actually buying them. Uh, and certainly when the availability is there for them, uh, by then the, a lot of these, uh, the, the worst of these bugs have been sorted out already. And one of the neat new technologies under the hood with iOS 13 and watchOS 6 is Swift UI, uh, which is essentially a whole new language paradigm for developing user interfaces on iOS and macOS, iPadOS, watchOS, the works. And uh, an interesting app for the watch that was written entirely in SwiftUI by underscore David Smith is Moon Plus Plus. And I hear you've been enjoying this new complication on your watch. Yeah, the Moon Phase watch complications are something that I've always been attracted to. I've been an astronomy geek my entire life. And uh, one of the things I've always liked on mechanical watches is a, a nice Moon Phase complication. So uh, I've always had a moon complication on my Apple Watch. Uh, Apple did actually have their own moon phase complication that they uh, they allowed you to use. And the one that uh, Underscore has created is actually really nice. It's a big improvement over the one that Apple put out. Uh, the one that Apple used was really just a simple sort of circle that was um, showing the, the different phases of the moon. Uh, the one that um, the moon plus plus complication is a very nicely rendered moon and i have actually found the way that he shows the brightness and the the dark sides of the dark parts of the moon have actually been really really good they they look far more realistic than uh sort of the simplified ones that apple has done and particularly in around the time of the new moon when you have very, very thin slivers of of the moon that have been exposed to the sun, 
uh, those are looking much better. So yeah, I'm a big fan of what um, of what Underscore has done with the, the Moon Plus Plus complication. Uh, I think it's free, or if it's not free, it's a couple of dollars. Uh, if you're a fan of Moonface complications and you've got an Apple Watch, I definitely recommend it. It's a, a really nice addition to uh, to the watch face. Mm. And the, the real selling point for it is is that it'll actually reflect exactly what the moon would look like in the sky above you, even over the course of the day as the moon is rising and setting. That that arc uh, of the moon will actually change over the course of the day, and the way it's displayed on the watch is going to be spot on the way that that you'd be seeing it up in the sky, which is not something that would be in any way attainable on a, a mechanical <laughs> moon phase display. Yeah, that is one of the nice things about it. It's it is certainly more accurate than anything I've seen on a mechanical watch. And as you say, David has put a lot of effort into uh, rendering the moon properly and making it look accurate. So I'm glad that he put the effort into it, and uh, I'm certainly happy to to pick it up and and add it to my watch. And it's certainly going to be a uh, a regular complication on all of my watch faces, regardless of which one I'm using. Now, on the topic of mechanical moon phases you're working on a a moon phase dial for one of one of your prototypes how's that coming along yeah my first watch prototype and uh, the first watch that i'll be releasing it does have a moon phase complication on it and uh, i did that specifically because i'm a huge fan of them i i love the look of them even in a mechanical watch where they obviously can't be rendered as well as what uh, what the moon plus plus complication was rendered as uh, but even still, I like having that complication on there. I think it's something interesting. It's it's not necessarily extremely practical for most people. Like I don't think most people's lives are are too affected by what phase the moon is in. Uh, although for those of us who live out in the country, the uh, knowing when you've got a new moon uh, will certainly impact how much light you have in the house at night when the lights automatically turn off. Out here on a new moon it is pitch black and you cannot see anything. So it, it is really nice to see uh, sort of when the moon is going to be uh, is going to be completely dark. And also when there is a full moon, it is incredible just how bright that full moon is and uh, how much you can see outside. Uh, so I, I've always been a big fan of, of being able to track the phases of the moon on my dial. And so that's why I decided for my first watch to do that. And fortunately, the uh, Eterna uh, Caliber 39 that I've been using, one of the options that you, they have as part of their modular caliber system is the ability to add a moon phase to it. Uh, so this uh, this first one that I'm doing has that. And yeah, I've, I've been really liking it. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of the sort of the default dial that they've chosen, uh, the default rendering they've chosen for the moon. Pretty simple and uh, not particularly appealing, but... Uh, one of the things I've been working on is making a new design for that and something that I can uh, make my own moon phase dials, make it a little bit more interesting, uh, maybe without going too overboard in terms of having uh, something extremely complicated. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to keep the amount of effort that I need to put into modifying the movement down as much as possible. Uh, but I think that making a new moon phase dial at the very least is something that I can do. So yeah, that's uh, that's my next task right now is actually working on designing that moon phase disc. I hear you've just about come to a decision on a, a pad printer. So what are we looking at? 
Yeah, I, I haven't quite made the final decision. I'm waiting to hear back from another company here in Canada. Uh, there were two printers that I've been looking at. One is from Kent Pad Printers. I know they're an international company. There happens to be a uh, a division here in Ontario. And the other one is Tampo Pad Printers. Uh, they're another one that um, that's producing uh, most of the parts for these machines are being produced in China, regardless of where you're buying them from. Uh, but both of these companies actually assemble them here in Canada and then service them out of Canada. Uh, and I believe they've also got European operations as well. I don't think they're they're just based out of Canada. Um, but I'm waiting to hear on a quote from Tampo Canada to see what they say about uh, their printer, which is similar to the one that I was looking at from Kent. Uh, but once I hear from that, I, I'll be making a decision pretty early on next week, I suspect. And uh, that's something that I hope by the end of October, I'll actually have a pad printer in hand. And I'll be able to start experimenting a little bit with printing because I know the basics of printing and I understand what uh, what's involved with it. But uh, as with any of these things, there's certainly a learning curve in terms of mixing up your inks and making sure they're the correct consistency and then figuring out exactly which inks should be used on metal and figuring out what the typeface needs to look like in terms of the size and how, you know, how legible it's going to be. So there's a lot of little things that I know that I'm going to need to play with. And that's why I've been trying to get the printer sooner rather than later so that I can do a lot of experimentation with it. And uh, that will also give me the ability to print my dials and then experiment with some engine turning and figure out exactly which designs look right for the engine turning, uh, things like that. So yeah, I'm hoping... Hoping by the end of next week, I'll actually have a printer on order and I'll be able to uh, to start playing around with that come uh, come the beginning of November. So what sort of factors have you been taking into consideration when comparing the printers? In my case, I, my needs are pretty basic and the printers that I'm looking at, I'm, I'm sort of getting the low-end uh, automatic printers that these companies make. Uh, they're making printers that are designed for doing thousands of pieces an hour. Uh, you know, obviously, they're geared towards people that are doing high production work, mostly printing on goods that you might get at a trade show or something like that, where you've got a, a company's name printed on, let's say, a USB key or something like that, uh, so, or a golf ball or something of that nature. So pad printing is used for a lot of different types of work like that. It's also used on uh, clothing as well. So all, a lot of T-shirts these days are being printed with a pad printer versus the traditional silk screening, uh, just because pad printing is so much faster than silk screening is. Uh, so most of these printers that they're producing are designed at high volume uh, work, often multicolor printing, which is something that if I'm doing it, I'm not too concerned about the printer being able to do multiple colors in a single run. Uh, I'm happy to be able to print the colors that I need, then change out the inks, and then go back and run all the dials through a second time. I'm not doing a large enough volume of printing that uh, that that's going to be an issue for me. So for instance, when I'm looking at my moon phase disc, I expect that that's going to have at least two or three colors in it. And so I'll need to run each of those discs sort of two or three times through my printer to be able to get uh, the different colors on there. And that's fine. I'm, I'm okay doing that. I'm not producing 100,000 watch dials at a time. I'm maybe going to be printing 20 or 30 watch dials at a time. Uh, but this will make my life easier because it will be something that I can set up easily, that I can get repeatable results with. That's something that's incredibly important. 
Uh, I've played around a little bit with sort of making a ghetto pad printer, you know, something sort of homemade. And I can certainly make something homemade. You know, when you look at the manual pad printers that are out there, it's not a particularly complicated design. But, you know, the nice thing about these is that they're simple. They're easy to to use. They've got a foot pedal to actuate the the printing uh, so I can, you know, I can have both my hands free to be able to work with the, the pieces that I'm working on. Yeah, just a lot of little things that they've done to make these printers work really, really well in the sorts of environments that I'm I'm trying to print in. So the the biggest challenge has actually been finding a printer that is not totally over spec for what I need, i.e., you know, it doesn't have like four color printing or it's not designed to have you know, a couple thousand pieces an hour put through it. That's That's been the biggest challenge is just finding something that's a little bit more reasonably priced and uh, a little bit uh, more more geared towards the the size and the scale of what I'm trying to do. So the, the pad printers I've worked with that I'm more accustomed to it would fit on a, a desktop, take about the same footprint as a, a desktop computer would with the, the foot pedal actuated. It sounds like these are quite a bit larger machine what sort of size are you looking at needing to clear up in your shop to be able to install one of these yeah these are not actually um significantly bigger than um, than what you're talking about uh the uh, most of these are designed as desktop units on a desk it would take up maybe about the same amount of space as a laser printer it'll be a bit taller than that obviously uh, but in terms of the actual footprint on a desk, for instance, it, it would be roughly about the same size as a laser printer. Uh, so it's not not really astronomically large. Certainly, in terms of the machines that I've got in my shop, uh, it's on the smaller scale of uh, of what I've got in my shop. The foot pedal is um, is just a, a sort of a remote control for it. You can also use the buttons on the machine itself if you want to. But the foot pedal is kind of nice, just so that you can keep your hands free for for working on. So is there a a body underneath the printer that the foot pedal is integrated into, or is it literally a remote control? It's literally a remote control. It's cabled into the um, yeah into the printer, so you can put the pedal wherever you want, and it will uh, you know it's it's not tied into the particular you know to the particular unit itself. So you can move it around and put it exactly where you need it to go. Nice. And I take it you're looking at exclusively printers with magnetic cups and and that sort of thing. There's a couple of nice little features like that. So the magnetic cups are nice because they make it uh, really easy to load these things with ink and not have ink going everywhere. Uh, you're not manually putting ink onto the um, the print plate. Uh, that's something I've seen a lot of uh, sort of artisan level uh, watchmakers, people who are doing, you know, let's say tens or twenties of watches a year. Uh, they're often sort of hand squeegeeing the the ink onto the plates. Uh, this isn't, um, you know, this is set up with a magnetic cup so that you're always getting the exact same amount of ink onto your print plate every single time. You don't have to worry about the ink, you know, spilling over because you've, you know, you've knocked the container that it was in. You don't have to worry about putting too little ink on something and having to, you know, sort of reprint a bunch of times because you you haven't gotten the coverage that you want. Uh, so little things like that. Uh, also, the the system for holding the print plate itself in place is quite nice. They're a magnetic print plate. Uh, they're sort of locked into a an indexing system that has very, very high repeatability. 
So when I put a plate back into the system, I know exactly where that plate is going to go. I know that it's going to line up exactly the same way every time. And it may be off by, you know, I think their their accuracy is somewhere around the five or six micron range for the type of printing that I'm doing. Five or, you know, plus or minus five microns is well within the the tolerances of what I need for printing a dial. So uh, there's a lot of little things like that that make this easier uh, for me. And then the best part about this is that if I decide to do something later on where I need to increase the volume of printing for something, let's say I start printing on my packaging. So I've got some boxes that I'm going to be putting my uh, my watches into or my pens or something like that. I can do all my own printing on those. I, you know, these these printers are designed to be able to do printing on packaging. So I can then start to do that kind of work. If I, you know, let's say sometime down the road, I decide to launch a Kickstarter watch where I'm producing, let's say, a couple thousand watches, and um, I want to be able to do those dials myself. This gives me the the freedom and the flexibility to do that. I can have those watch dials printed out in a couple of days by myself. I don't have to go back and forth with somebody in, you know, in Asia or Europe um, trying to get proofs done from them. Uh, there's a lot of advantages for me for something like this, um, even at the small scale that I'm doing it now. And if I decide to increase my scale for some reason, if there's more demand or, or need for printing on the types of things that I'm doing, then this will allow me to do that and it'll allow me to sort of keep pace with that. And uh, it's not something I'm likely to outgrow. And in terms of actual work holding, do both of the pad printers you're looking at have any sort of rotational axis that uh, you'll be able to adjust for doing dials? Uh, these don't. They are set up with an XY table and um, the X, sorry, I should say, they're set up with an X, Y, and Z table. So you're able to adjust the height of it as well. Uh, so if you've got a deeper object, something like a box, then you can adjust the, the table height and then you can adjust it in X and Y to sort of line it up perfectly for what you need. In my case, the rotational alignment of it is far less important. And the reason for that is because I have my dials in their, the form that I'm working on them while I'm making them, they have indexed holes in them. So I can put them onto a carrier, which I can then index into the, uh, into a holder on the table. It will hold the dials in exactly the same place every single time. So when I go from my uh, printer, it will have printed the uh, dial design where I want it to. And then I can put that dial onto my straight line engine and I've got a holder for my for these dials on my straight line engine. And they will then be indexed properly and they'll be they'll have the you know they'll be in the correct place rotationally as well as centered. And then when I bring it over to my pantograph afterwards to be able to then cut out the window for the moon phase complication. Again, it will be going on to an indexed plate holder on the pantograph so that I can hold it in exactly the right place and have it in the exact right orientation. So I, I've sort of avoided the need for having a rotational alignment system in each one of these by using index holes on the actual dial itself. And then once the dial is complete, I can then take that and I can cut out the excess material from the outside of it, uh, the, the holes which are aligning it for where it needs to go. And that will then allow me to clean up that outside edge and make it exactly the diameter that I need to be able to, to then uh, fit properly into the uh, case itself. 
you've very cleanly answered my my follow up question, which was going to have been whether the the index points were on the dial itself or on uh, excess material around the dial. So that's a really clever way to go about things, and and you avoid all sorts of of headaches going that route. You really do. And there are a few ways that you can index using just the dial itself. So for instance, uh, you can index using the dial feet that are on the back of it because you know exactly where those dial feet are going to go. And the dial feet have to be soldered onto the dial before you can do any of this work because it involves heat and that's going to potentially distort the metal as well as potentially discolor the metal and in the case of the printing, it would certainly destroy the ink that's on there. So you have to do those dial feet first. I have considered maybe going to a vacuum system to hold the dial in place. So you would use the dial feet to index exactly where uh, the dial is is in terms of rotation and you know its XY coordinates. And then you would use a vacuum system to sort of suck it into place and keep it locked down to the table. I may go with that something like that in the future, but honestly, it's a lot of extra complication, especially considering I would need to, you know, introduce that to all of these machines. I'd have to add it to my printer. I'd have to add it to my straight line engine, my Rose engine, my pantograph. There's so many places that I would then need to add that facility into. And I'm not convinced yet that it would be beneficial. The one downside that you end up with in terms of uh, my design right now, where I've got some extra material around the outside, I am dealing with precious metals. So I do have additional precious metal that I have to maintain around the dial while I'm working on it. And then after I've cut the final dial out of that that material, I have some excess material left over that, you know, that isn't going into the dial directly. Now that's easily recycled. Um, the nice thing about these precious metals is that they're infinitely recyclable. So I I don't have to worry about that metal being wasted. But it is another process that I then have to go through where I have to take that material and recycle it and turn it back into usable sheet. Uh, in some cases, that's easier than others. If I'm dealing with, let's say, silver or gold, it's very easy for me to melt down that scrap, uh, roll it out on my my rolling mills and turn it into sheet material again. If I happen to use something like Palladium 500 or a Platinum for my dial, that becomes a little more challenging because those I don't have the facility to uh, melt down and then roll out again. Uh, mostly because when you melt them, they need to be in an oxygen-free environment, a completely oxygen-free environment. And I just don't have the facility to do that right now. So there are some disadvantages to the way that I'm doing it, mostly in having extra material around. But at the end of the day... I'm okay with that because it, it makes my life significantly easier. I don't have to add vacuum chucks to everything, which would take time and effort and money to develop and, and add on to all these machines. You know, it's just, it's so much easier. It, it's a very simple system and I know that it works. It I've done indexed machining like this for years and years and years and I've I've never had problems with it. So I think in the short term, this is going to be the way to go, and it may be just what I continue to do forever uh, because I I don't know that there's going to be a, a huge need to change it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great way to do main plates and, and the like as well, particularly if you don't want to have your, your index holes in the, the main plates themselves, which is actually quite common in a lot of mass-manufactured movements. There are these, these random holes that uh, 
most people probably wouldn't even notice, but they they are there, and those are, are for positioning them uh, on on various jigs and, and tool holders during the manufacturing process. And another means of of indexing directly on the the dial that was particularly common in like the sixties, seventies, and eighties is to have a, a small notch cut at six o'clock or, or twelve o'clock position on the dial, and you would have a a triangular point that would set into that to to rotate the dial into place. And that's actually uh, not so much a triangular point, but more of an actual cutout, still very common amongst some low-end watches these days, uh, such as those that you'd find in, in say, a, a Swatch watch or a Tissot watch that actually f- have forgone dial feet entirely. Uh, that that index point is actually used as well to, to help hold the dial in the position it's, it's supposed to be in when it's actually on the watch, usually held in place by some sort of plastic retaining ring or the like. Yeah, I've certainly seen a lot of that. And I think if you're dealing with the types of dials that they are, uh, in particular where it's really just a pad printed dial, uh, or there's and there's very little uh, in terms of ornamentations being done to that dial, I think you could certainly get away with that and that would be the better way of going. Uh, and obviously not having to put uh, dial feet on would uh, reduce another step from the process, so it would be much easier to do. Uh, because I need to be able to hold these dials in place to then engine turn them, I really do need to have sturdy work holding for them. And I can't just get away with the, you know, with a notch, um, you know, and, and hoping that it doesn't move on me. Because any any tiny movement, even if it's moving by a thousandth of an inch, it's going to be enough that it's going to cause problems with the indexing on the engine turning, and it will be very, very noticeable in the final result. So I do need to be able to sort of bolt the piece down and and hold it in place. And the other advantage that I have over somebody like Swatch or Seiko or uh, you know any of these larger companies is that I'm not trying to produce a million watches a year. I'm trying to produce a couple of score of watches a year at most. And so I don't have to deal with trying to produce in a way that is completely efficient. I can have some inefficiencies in terms of the amount of time it takes me to switch from one, you know, from one dial to the next on my straight line engine. You know, if it takes me two minutes to change out dials on my straight line engine, that's not a big deal. I'm going to be spending 10 or 15 hours engine turning it. So a couple of minutes in terms of the uh, the change out on the dial isn't a big deal. It's not going to not going to cause me any problems in the long term. Well, I hear you. You now have some black 3.0 in hand. So once you you finally decide on on a pad printer and, and pull the trigger on it, I look look forward to hearing how your initial experiments with pad printing super black ink on your dials pans out. Yeah, I'm going to try doing that on uh, one of the moon phase dials. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, I I tried painting a little bit of the black 3.0 onto a piece of silver, and that did not go particularly well. Uh, It it looked really, really horrible. But I'll see what it looks like when it's printed onto uh, some, I think it's nickel silver that the the dials are made from. Either nickel silver or steel, I can't remember. So we'll see what they're, you know, what it looks like when I try pad printing onto the moon phase disc and uh, see, I, it would be really nice to have that, that sort of deep matte black that the, the black 3.0 um, produces. 
if I could get that and then be able to have the uh, the moon and maybe some stars show up on it afterwards, that'd be nice to be able to do. But I, I'm not holding my breath. I, I suspect that if as I experiment with that, I'm probably going to run into some issues with it. But uh, I did notice that there are some matte uh, blacks that are available in the pad printing inks. So I do know that there are some out there that I can use. They're obviously not going to be quite as nice as the black 3.0, but I suspect for what I'm doing, they're going to be fine. So we'll, we'll experiment with it and see, see what I think looks nice. See what, uh, see what I think works really well for this, uh, this particular design and, uh, give it a try. The nice thing is that I can make five watches with one design. I want to change it up a little bit. Then I can make another five watches with a slightly tweaked design later on. Uh, so I, I'm not beholden to a particular series, uh, you know, infinite series of watches that have to be absolutely identical. So that uh, that makes my life a little bit easier as well. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>